Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In the early 19th century, Americans seeking to escape crowded coastal towns and cities began to settle further inland, away from navigable waterways. Since passable roads were scarce at that time, it became necessary to develop a transportation system that would enable the movement of goods across inland routes. The canal system was a man-made waterway where boats and barges, powered by mules, would transport freight to various markets along a specific route. One of those canals, called the Morris Canal, stretched 102 miles across the rugged landscape of northern New Jersey from Phillipsburg on the Delaware River to Newark and later to the New York Harbor at Jersey City. Construction of the Morris Canal began in 1825 and first opened for business in 1831. The canal was used to carry large quantities of coal from eastern Pennsylvania and also iron, lumber, agricultural, and home goods to the East Coast cities and points in between. Bloomfield, in Essex County, New Jersey, was one of the communities through which the Morris Canal passed. For many years, that town experienced benefits, including commercial and population growth, until the railroads brought about the closure of the canal in the early 20th century. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with Bloomfield Councilman Rich Rockwell. Rich, who is a council liaison to both the Morris Canal Greenway Committee and the Historic Preservation Commission, is also a trustee of the Historical Society of Bloomfield and author of the book, Bloomfield Through Time. He will talk about the history of the Morris Canal, including its engineering features its effect on day-to-day life, and its ultimate abandonment in 1924, after nearly 100 years of operation. Rich will also tell of the efforts made in his community and the state of New Jersey to preserve the rich history of the Morris Canal. I'd now like to welcome Councilman Rich Rockwell to our show. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm glad to be here participating in your show. So, Rich... Before we start talking about the Mars Canal, and specifically the Mars Canal in Bloomfield, New Jersey, where is Bloomfield and what kind of a town is it? Bloomfield is in Essex County. It's sort of a in-between urban-suburban area, and the population's a little over 50,000. And you are a councilman there. How long have you been on the town council? For five or six years. So let's talk about the Morris Canal and Bloomfield. The Morris Canal stretched from the Delaware River all the way to Newark and then eventually Jersey City. So it's over 100 miles of canal. So it passed through lots and lots of communities. And Bloomfield is one of those communities. So we want to kind of address what happened to that canal when it was active and when it was abandoned and what's going on today. When the canal was active, and running through Bloomfield. What kind of features existed, and what would it have been like back in the heyday of the Morris Canal? Well, when the canal was first started, the population in Bloomfield was pretty low. There were some mills. Mills were formed along the streams. Bloomfield had two rivers, Second River and Third River, and they were both used for hydropower for mills. And then uh, the Morris Canal came in and it spurred a lot of industry and population growth. The fact that the canal brought coal into the area, enabled industries to come in. It, it, It allowed places like Oaks Mill, which had previously used hydropower. It allowed them to use coal for steam power. And um, it allowed a number of other industries to start up who either needed coal or needed a convenient way to ship goods that ship supplies that they needed or ship goods that they created. The fact that it provided coal also made it much easier for people to heat their homes in winter, which would have been very difficult and required mostly wood previously. 
So uh, it encouraged uh, population growth and building of homes. Also, the ability to supply building materials easier by transporting them on the canal. And uh, so it had a lot to do with where population grew and where industries grew up. And that's one of the reasons Bloomfield is what it is today, because of the establishment of these early industries and population. So from what I understand, reading about the Morris Canal, there was a extensive part of the canal that was a, called a level from Lincoln Park, New Jersey, all the way to Bloomfield. So it was rather flat, kind of clear sailing there. But once it gets into Bloomfield, and at this point, it's getting, I guess, closer to the eastern terminus of the canal, you start to get some differences in levels, which required different engineering features. Could you tell us about that? Sure. To actually get across the state, they had to climb, ascend and descend close to a thousand feet. And it was impractical. They had used locks for canals like this previously, but because of the height it needed to navigate, using inclined planes was a more efficient way to, to do that. So they developed a um, design for creating and building inclined planes that could take a boat up and down about 50 feet. The, the inclined planes were between 50 and 100 feet. There were, I think, 20 some throughout New Jersey. There were also a number of locks. So Bloomfield had one lock and one inclined plane. The inclined plane in Bloomfield raised and lowered boats about 50 feet. They, as you mentioned about the level, they raised them up to a level that was around Hoover Avenue. It used to be called Franklin Avenue. From Hoover Avenue in Bloomfield all the way for 17 miles to Lincoln Park was level. There were no inclined planes or locks. And people used to go ice skating there. You could ice skate to Patterson or all the way to Lincoln Park if you wanted to. But there were people in Bloomfield who talked about ice skating to Patterson to visit family and things like that. That is really interesting. Now, that brings up a, a point. The canal was not 12 months a year activity, was it? No. Yeah, no. The water would freeze in the winter, so they had to close it in the winter. They also closed on Sundays. So, um, yeah, the winter months, they were closed, and they only operated six days a week, and they only operated during daylight also. Okay. And the difference as far as when you would use a lock versus an inclined plane, was it based on how much you had to raise the level? Yeah, it was uh, largely around topography, but it also takes a lot longer. If, so locks are good for lifting and lowering a boat about 10 feet, and it takes 10 or 15 minutes to get a boat through a lock. And it also takes 10 or 15 minutes to get a, a boat up or down an inclined plane. So if you were to use five locks instead of one inclined plane, let's say for 50 feet, you'd need a lot more space and it would take the boat a lot, lot longer to get through the, a series of five locks than an inclined plane. But also it had a lot to do with topography. So they located the planes in places that because of the topography was a logical place to raise a boat and then have level area before and, and after it. So one of the other features in Bloomfield was an aqueduct. Yes, there were actually two aqueducts in Bloomfield. Aqueducts were like bridges that were made of wood, but carried the canal. They were filled with water about five feet deep. They carried the canal over a river. So in Bloomfield, there we have two rivers, Second River and Third River. And the canal was close to both of those rivers. It almost paralleled them in certain areas, partly because the canal was looking for the most level areas. And that's where you'd typically find rivers. People often ask, why didn't you just use the river instead of the canal? These rivers weren't navigable. They weren't deep enough. And they weren't didn't have a steady enough amount of water in them to be practical for, for navigating. They had a lot, you know, they have a lot of water after it rains and they don't have much water in dry periods. They also flood periodically. So in locations where um, the canal in, in Bloomfield was usually higher than the river, People think that they might have gotten water from the river. They really didn't get water from the river to put into the canal because it would have required pumping. But the canal was probably about five or 10 feet higher than the river. So when it got to a river and had to cross, they built a bridge made of water, so to speak, a wooden bridge that 
held the canal in water and that carried the boats over the river. We had one on Second River near Newark Avenue, and there was another one on Third River near James Street. Second River and Third River are still in the same locations they used to be in. So on uh, where the aqueduct used to be on Third River, the river now goes under a highway where it would have gone under the canal. So there's a lot of activity around the canal coming through the town. You've got goods coming in from Pennsylvania. They're being transported. So that's good for Bloomfield. As you mentioned, it might increase the population of the area. There's a lot of activity there. And the industry, the increased industry created more jobs too, and, and need for housing. So it really increased the population industry and just general growth in the town. Right. So it's a lot of years starting in uh, the 1830s when the canal came into Bloomfield. But you have features there that probably need maintenance. The inclined plane, the, the locks, the aqueducts. Well, yeah, that's true. They Not only did they need maintenance, but they needed to be staffed. So a lock needed some, needed a lock tender. The canal company often provided a house for the lock tender. The lock tender usually lived at the lock. So they had a, a conch shell that they would blow like a horn when the boat was approaching. So the lock tender would know to come out and open or close the lock, depending on whether the boat was going up or down. Then the inclined planes needed two operators. They needed somebody to operate the brake. There was a, a powerhouse that had a brake system that controlled the flow of water. Then the brake man on the plane itself, they had a cradle that the car went onto a cradle, that cradle car itself went up and down the plane. And there was someone positioned on that device to control the braking if they needed that. You wonder, what did these folks do in the off-season? Well, actually, yeah, they had to find other jobs. So another byproduct of the canal was sort of, was ice. Sometimes these people would get jobs uh, cutting ice that would be stored in ice houses that would be shipped out later in the summer for refrigeration purposes. And the canal also, you, you mentioned maintenance. All of these structures required maintenance, the locks, the planes, the canal itself, the uh, aqueducts, bridges. There were 250 some bridges across the canal too, across the state. So, and they needed to be replaced periodically because they'd wear out or rot. So yeah, constant maintenance of these kind of things. They actually went through a process in the forties of widening and deepening the canal, which meant they had to redo all of the inclined planes and locks. They had to widen them slightly. Um, when they did that, they standardized the design of the inclined plane so that they used the standard uh, mechanism across all of the planes in New Jersey, where previously they had different engineering techniques and machinery equipment that they used as they were perfecting the engineering of it. When they did finally perfect it, they used that across all of them. They also had frequent problems with muskrats and other animals like that that would dig holes in the canal. If they dug a hole in just the right way, they could... Uh, potentially drain the canal. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> it was also damage caused by flooding, too. So these um, aqueducts, for example, sometimes if the river flooded, the aqueduct itself could act as a dam holding back water. All this water pressure against the the aqueduct, well, it had, had the effect, one, of, of damming water, which would exacerbate the flooding, but also sometimes washed out the aqueducts. So flooding could wash out the wall of the canal also. So, you know, anytime flooding occurred, um, they, they might have to rebuild some of the bridges or aqueducts and do repair work on, on the canal. And so, yeah, constant uh, requirement for maintenance. Think of it this way too, is uh, we, we think of what a big task that would be now, even with backhoes and all the equipment and machinery we have now, but this was all done by hand. All the maintenance and repair was all by hand. That's a tremendous yep. amount of labor, right? Yep, yep, yeah, it is. Really? So let's move on here and 
let's consider the fact that uh, I think the the heyday of the Morris Canal when the most freight was moved over it was back right around the Civil War era, I think. Right, Rich? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And then we run into the competition, of course, the, the railroad really started to obsolete the Morris Canal right almost from the very beginning because the railroad started to come into play, I guess, in the 1830s. And by the time of the Civil War, it was widely used. So the Morris Canal was becoming obsolete. But when would you say that the Morris Canal became, shall we say, uh, underused or sort of became a, a recreational thing as opposed to a practical commercial feature? Well, after the Civil War, so another another point about railroads, they started building railroads and, and experimenting with and perfecting the engineering for railroads as feeder lines to bring coal to the canal and also iron ore and iron products, getting them to the canal to, to be shipped to other places. So as they developed the technology for railroads and the, the railroads got larger and larger and longer and competition for the canal. So railroads could carry hundreds of tons of coal and they could run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They could ship hundreds of tons of coal with just a few staff. So it was much cheaper. The canal required all this, as we talked about, the number of people who were required on lots of lanes, the maintenance requirements, uh, the fact that it closed on Sundays, the fact that it was closed in the winter. So the railroad had a big advantage. So in the late 1800s, um, the use of the canal decreased pretty steadily after the Civil War, uh, the more railroads were being used. As it became less and less profitable, you know, it was difficult for them to afford to maintain it the way it needed to be maintained as there was less traffic on it. But eventually, you know, uh, late, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, the canal wasn't used very much. It, it took a long time for people to figure out what to do with it. It was so expensive to, to dismantle and nobody really knew, you know, what are we going to do with this whole thing? This hundred miles of, there was property, property rights and water rights was also an issue. You've got the locks and the inclined planes and these couple hundred bridges. So it was quite an expensive proposition to dismantle it. There were some initiatives early on uh, when they started talking about abandoning the canal where some people proposed using it as um, recreational, keeping it as a what they call the parkway. Mm -hmm. So meaning the whole length of it would be park-like and used for recreation. People could go canoeing, horseback riding, um, riding bicycles on the towpath, hiking on the towpath. The state did a study with a proposal for using it as recreation, but that would have been extremely expensive. You'd have to continue a lot of that maintenance. In addition to that, you'd also have to maintain the locks and planes. So if you were going to maintain the canal for canoeing, you'd have to get from one level of the canal to another in, a, in one of the locks. Somebody would have to operate the locks or you'd have to close them or figure out some way to keep the locks in the planes. They had to be there because of the differences in height. So it would be a very expensive proposition. It was just something that the state felt like they couldn't afford at the time and there wasn't any other uh, funding for it. So they uh, decided to abandon it instead. As far as the abandonment is concerned, I think it was in early 1920s when they decided to abandon the Morris Canal. Did that mean that they actually shut off the water source? They stopped maintaining it? What did abandoning really mean? Good question. Somebody wrote a whole book about it. It's a very complicated process. The other thing I forgot to mention as far as maintaining the canal, if you wanted to maintain the canal as a park, You'd also have to figure out how to supply the water. Initially, when they built the canal, they got the water from Lake Apatcong, which was the highest point. It's sort of the center, um, logical, logically the center of this canal across the state. It wasn't exactly geographically the center, but it was the highest point. And initially, they thought they would be able to supply at Lake Apatcong. They dammed it and raised the level five feet. And they thought that that would provide enough water for the canal going east and west. But it turned out that wasn't really enough water. 
there were also leaks and a, a number of other things, complications where some of the water was lost. But they eventually built feeder lines to, to bring in water to the canal from other sources. There was one in Wayne, for example, where they built a separate mini canal that would bring water as a feeder line into the canal. And then there were disagreements about water rights too, how much was allocated to the canal. There was also the potential for the canal to be used to deliver water to places throughout the state. That would have been another thing that would have been complicated, figuring out who owned the water, who's paying for it, how they're gonna manage who gets how much of the water. But then the other thing about dismantling the canal, abandoning it, because there were 250 bridges and then all these inclined planes and locks, something had to be done with all of these things. And, and not to mention the property. So there was the property, when the canal was abandoned, this property reverted to the state and they offered it to the municipalities that the canal ran through. Bloomfield bought the five mile section of the canal for $5,000 and they bought some additional land that had been owned and used by the canal company for about $10,000. Newark also bought their property for the canal. They wanted to build a subway and they did. They built the city subway in the abandoned canal. Bloomfield was also planning, was hoping to have a high-speed trolley line that would be a connection to the city subway in Newark. So the, the idea was that you'd have a high-speed trolley line connecting Newark to Patterson, and Bloomfield would be about halfway in between. But then things changed in the 20s. There was less desire to have public transportation. Trolleys and public transportation was falling out of favor. People were referring to use cars. There was the depression. A number of things happened that really caused the demise of this concept of high-speed trolley lines. And Bloomfield did not build a high-speed trolley line. They just left the, most of the canal abandoned. So bridges. So the other thing, there were 250 bridges. So each one of these bridges had to be either maintained or removed. There were a number of bridges in Bloomfield. Most of them, they regraded the canal so that it was at the same level as the street so there was no bridge anymore but some of the bridges we've got the berkeley avenue bridge which is near wright's field we have the james street bridge and baldwin street bridge those bridges were built to span the canal and a river so the river was right next to the canal and the bridges were built to cross the canal and the river so when the canal was abandoned, they needed to keep the bridge over the river. So they kept the bridge over the canal too. So today you still have bridges at Berkeley Avenue, James Street and Baldwin Street, but the road goes under those bridges. So there was a lot to consider in the abandonment as, to, as far as what could be maintained, what could remain there, what had to be disassembled or what have you. But Let's talk about Bloomfield now. So they purchased the land, they purchased the abandoned canal, the high-speed trolley idea sort of faltered and failed. So during that time from the 1920s when Bloomfield purchased that portion until the early 1950s, I want to focus in that era. We're talking about basically a hollowed-out canal there was no water source except rainwater, I would imagine. So I'm picturing a canal that's maybe people might start throwing stuff into it. Uh, there might be stagnant water, mosquitoes, overgrowth of weeds. And I know you've referred to in the past when we've had discussions about invasive species that come in and start filling it up. My dad lived alongside the abandoned canal when he was a boy. And he remembered there being a lot of broken glass and rocks and stuff. His little sister cut her foot on a piece of glass down there. So it wasn't the maybe the greatest thing to have running through your town as an abandoned piece of property. Can you talk to that era just a little bit? Yeah, you, you pretty much described what it was. People referred to it as a weed field ditch. They had to dig sort of drainage ditches within it. Because they filled it in where these bridges had been, you'd have sections that were essentially, you'd have a dam where the bridge used to be. 
So they had to make culverts and drainage systems to drain the rainwater out. Somewhat effective. Sometimes there were stagnant pools and there were weeds growing in it. And sometimes people threw garbage in it. But the, um, the towpath, which was part of the design of the canal, which is, which is where the mules walked as they pulled the canal boats, the towpath remained. And the fact that it remained, people frequently used it for walking as a walking trail. There were places where, you know, kids would walk to school on the towpath. There was a place where they had horseback riding on the towpath in Bloomfield in this abandonment period. But for the most part, it was um, it was a weed field ditch that people didn't like and it was pretty undesirable. Not much use for it, except, like I said, people did use the towpath. Sort of a shortcut for some people, depending on where you live, to get to places. And people walked a lot more then also. Right. So let's bring it to early 1950s. And an idea comes up about a highway that's going to run from North Jersey down to the shore. The Garden State Parkway idea comes into being. Tell us about how that idea and the creation of the Garden State Parkway, which many people may know, if you're not from this area, maybe not, that it's a it's a major route for going down to the shore and all points in between. But how did the abandoned canal and the Garden State Parkway come sort of together, so to speak? Well, the canal went east-west across the state, or west-east, depending on which end you're starting at. But through Bloomfield, it went mostly north-south, even though it was going east-west because of the topography the route of the canal through bloomfield was mostly north-south so as this highway was looking for a north-south route they actually promoted the idea that because this abandoned canal was there and they could use it for the highway that they would be saving property and houses they wouldn't have to demolish houses they wouldn't have to buy property they could just use the abandoned canal for this highway. So it turned out there were probably maybe two or three miles of the canal, of the abandoned canal that turned out to be aligned perfectly with where they wanted to put the Garden State Parkway. And they did build the parkway in the right of way of the canal. That was only a couple miles, though. The rest of the Garden State Parkway required tearing down houses and dislocating people and several hundred. There were about 400 properties that were affected in Bloomfield to build the Garden State Parkway. So, you know, they alleviated having to tear down some of those because they could use the right-of-way of the canal. When they initially scoped out the path of the parkway, they didn't plan on it as being as wide as it ended up being. So because they needed to increase the width, they needed to expand beyond the width of the canal anyway. So they ended up taking some streets and houses and many people had to be dislocated who were adjacent to the canal to build the parkway. And then at the same time, Bloomfield had a lot of downtown traffic. This concept of what they were going for with the parkway, this sort of limited access highway, high speed, limited access, no turns, no traffic lights. That was a new concept as far as getting traffic moving. So on the streets in Bloomfield, there was a lot of traffic. If you wanted to go north-south, you'd have to drive through the center of Bloomfield. So as they were building, as they started planning and designing the parkway, they also realized that the rest of the abandoned canal, which hadn't been covered by the parkway, would also be useful for a highway. So where they once wanted to have a high-speed trolley line, it now turned out that this would be a convenient route both to lessen the traffic in Bloomfield Center, get traffic off some of these local streets with all the traffic lights and pedestrians by moving it onto a separate, uh, it's not exactly a limited access highway, but it's, it is much more limited, very few traffic lights. They built JFK Drive in the abandoned Morris Canal in Bloomfield, which was Combined combination, it was going to alleviate some of the traffic in Bloomfield Center, but at the same time, it served as a feeder road for the Garden State Parkway. So some of the exit and entrance ramps through Bloomfield 
use the abandoned canal, which is now JFK Drive, for access to and from the parkway. And when the what's now JFK Drive was originally built, it was originally called the Morris Canal Highway. That was in the mid to late 50s. And then in the early 60s, they named it JFK Drive to commemorate John F. Kennedy after his assassination. And it's been called JFK Drive ever since. So the, the Morris Canal, the remnant, or the, the place where the Morris Canal was, did serve a purpose for the Garden State Parkway and to alleviate some more traffic from downtown Bloomfield. What happened, Rich, after the parkway came in and they made those changes and it left certain portions of the canal bed in town? Were there any early efforts, say, uh, prior to more recent years and when you came to town and when you joined the council, were there any efforts made to preserve portions of the canal, to tell the history, uh, to protect any of the features of the canal? Well, some of that happened in areas in the western part of the state. There are actually a couple sections of the canal that are still intact with water in them. There's also a small section in Clifton. In order for them to preserve a section of the canal, they had to have a way to get water into it. So there's a small section in um, Wharton. There's a small section at Waterloo Village. Those had streams nearby that they were able to use to provide water just to keep the canal filled for uh, preservation purposes and for tourists. So there were some efforts um, in some places throughout the state, especially in the West, to preserve small sections of it. But in Bloomfield, I'm not aware of anything in particular happening until probably in the 1990s. Well, actually, I would say 19 in the 70s, in the mid-70s, there was acknowledgement of the canal being an important historic site throughout the whole state. And it was put on the state and national register of historic places. That was in 1974. So there was that acknowledgement that it was an important historic site and it was worthy of preservation. But unfortunately, by that time, a lot of it had been in, in this the, the more urban the area is, like Newark and Bloomfield, as we get closer to New York and we're in the New York metropolitan area, the more this kind of thing became more valuable for development and highways and transportation, rather than people thinking of it as historic preservation and park preservation. So as you get closer to New York, you're less likely to have parts of the canal still intact. In the 90s, there was a man named Al Frost who was with uh, working with the Canal Society who put up these brown signs that uh, acknowledged the location of the Morris Canal. He had a plan all across the state. The signs are slightly different in different areas. They didn't have a uniform sign that was used all the way across the state. They did use brown. So in some areas, um, they, we used a rectangle in Bloomfield some of the other places use a different, slightly different shape, but um, they installed eight signs in Bloomfield designating the location of the canal uh, where it used to be and with a little bit of historical information about the canal. So that was done in the 90s, a collaborative efforts between each of the communities that it went through. So for in, in Bloomfield, they worked with our Department of Public Works and um, had eight of these signs installed. So that's in the 90s. Now, my wife and kids and I lived in Bloomfield from 86 to 92. I think we were there when we started seeing those signs. If not, it was not long after that that we saw some of those brown signs. But, Rich, so other than the brown signs that were around, uh, there wasn't a whole lot else that was going on as far as preserving the Morris Canal until more recent years. Let's talk about you a little bit, Rich. Let's uh, pause for a moment. When did you actually move to Bloomfield? I moved to Bloomfield in 2003. And as far as efforts toward preserving the Morris Canal and the history surrounding the Morris Canal in Bloomfield, what has been your experience before you became a councilman and then what efforts have taken place since you've been on the town council? Well, there were some individuals who had a, 
had an interest in the canal. So, for example, there was a man in Bloomfield named Fred Branch who was very involved in the historical society, was the editor of the newsletter. He collected a lot of information about the canal and did photographs and uh, historical information. He put together a slideshow probably back in the 80s or 90s. So there were individuals who did small things like that, but there was no concerted effort. Now the Canal Society, there, there is a New Jersey Canal Society and their scope includes the Morris Canal and another canal in New Jersey, the Delaware and Raritan Canal, which is further south from here, sort of central New Jersey, went through Princeton and, and that area. So the Canal Society, I forget it, I don't know exactly what year they formed, but they were very interested in preservation and educating people about the canal. Then uh, I guess around the maybe 2010 or so, the Canal Society started an initiative to, to actually have a statewide preservation plan to preserve the canal across the state. This was the generation of the concept, the Morris Canal Greenway across the state. So they're doing a lot of work, the Canal Society and various communities, depending on the nature of what's left of the canal. So as I said before, as we're closer you get to New York City, the New York metropolitan area, the more likely you are to see less of the canal intact. The further west, some of the sections of the canal are still intact. Some pieces of property were bought by people, industries, or private individuals. So in some areas, they're actually purchasing, repurchasing the land that was originally the canal to preserve it as a trail or part of this canal greenway effort. In Bloomfield, there's not much we can do where the parkway has taken over the canal or JFK Drive. Although in one sense, having JFK Drive, there's a sidewalk along it. When you're walking along JFK Drive, you are walking along the Morris Canal. So I lead um, walking tours of the canal a couple times a year through Bloomfield. And you know you can walk along JFK Drive and uh, you're seeing exactly where the canal used to be. So when we do these tours, I have photographs of things that used to be located along the canal as we pass them um, and talk about the bridges that used to be there, the locks that used to be there. And we have photographs of those things. In um, 2013, part of this initiative that came out of the Canal Society in collaboration with the North Jersey Transportation Planning Authority and JTPA, they started what was called a working group. They tried to get all these people together all across the state, the Canal Society and representatives of each one of the municipalities that the canal used to be in and park people, people who were involved in counties, the county park initiatives. So there's a lot of, lot of sections of where the canal used to be through Passaic County, for example, that are trailways now part of the Morris Canal Greenway. They're improving some of these sections, um, creating new sections where they had to purchase private property. And this is happening throughout the western part of the state too. So there's a lot of places where, you know, they're extending the Morris Canal Greenway. And there are a lot of things that are individual little things along, along the way. So in Wharton, for example, they just, well, not just, but of the past 10 years or so, they uncovered what was previously one of the locks and um, they preserved what remained of it and repaired parts so that you can see what an actual operating lock used to look like. And they're continuing to work on it so that they will actually be able to use the lock and you'll be able to go through it in a boat. In addition to that, at that location, there was a lock tender's house which over the years had a fire and was vandalized. And there was virtually nothing left to it except the stones that had been used to build it. They rebuilt that and it's completed now. So the lock tender's house is there at the lock. We don't have that kind of opportunity in, in Bloomfield where the lock used to be in Bloomfield is now a parking lot where the lock and the bridge over the canal were is now a street where the lock tender's house used to be is now a private residents. So we can't, you know, we can't um, remove streets and we don't have the money to buy multiple properties and tear down people's houses. 
So we're doing what we can with what we have left to acknowledge the canal. We have wayfinding signs put up around town. So this was part of the initiative of the Morris Canal Greenway. We formed the Morris Canal Greenway Committee in Bloomfield in 2014 to specifically focus on Bloomfield and working along with the Canal Society and this working group that was established. And then we got grants, uh, we applied for grants to do signage projects. So we also got a grant to improve the section of the canal near Wright's Field. There was a section of canal that went through what's now Wright's Field that goes from there to where there used to be an aqueduct near Newark Avenue. That was filled in back in, I'm not sure exactly when it was, sometime after the canal was abandoned, as that particular property became a park, they filled the canal in and used it as a recreational trail. So it's been used for people to walk and bike for many years since Wright's Field was formed back in the 30s or 40s. So it's been used as a recreational trail, and we just got a grant to pave it and improve it. It's a lot of the sections of it are a bit muddy now, and it's just a sort of a dirt road. So uh, we're going to pave it, and we're going to have some seating areas with some interpretive signs about the Morris Canal. Um, so that was part of a grant that's you know part of this whole Morris Canal Greenway initiative throughout the state. One of the other things that we have in Bloomfield, and one of the reasons we formed this committee, was we do have a property and a house, the Collins House, that was located on the canal. The house was actually there before the canal was built. So the canal company bought property from the Collins family where they built an inclined plane. That's where the inclined plane was in Bloomfield. And there were two generations of Collins men who were carpenters on the, on the inclined plane. Isaac Collins and his son, John. So they lived in this house. They were carpenters who built bridges. They would help to build these aqueducts and the um, inclined planes. As we mentioned before, they required a lot of maintenance. So as carpenters, they would do repair work on these bridges and rebuild bridges when they needed to be rebuilt. So the house is still there. And the Collins family sold the house to a paper mill, which was right next door around the uh, early 1900s. And since then, the paper company used the house as a place for either a supervisor or a caretaker to live. So back in the 80s, 1980s, the owner of the paper mill, which at that time was Markel, decided to move someplace else. They decided to abandon that property. They sold the property to the town and they had been using the house as a caretaker for the caretaker's house. The caretaker was still living there and he retired, but they let him continue to live in the house and the town ended up owning the house. The town allowed him to continue to live there. But when he and his wife did move out in the 1990s, the house was abandoned and um, it remained abandoned for about 15 years. It was in pretty bad shape. It had been vandalized. The roof was deteriorating. There was a lot of water damage inside. So we wanted to preserve the house as part of this committee. So in the meantime, we've been applying for grants. Uh, the town has contributed a lot of money. We have stabilized the house. We have uh, the exterior has been completed. We got a new roof. So we're protecting the interior from any further water damage. That part has been done. So the exterior of the house has been preserved, but the interior hasn't been completed. So we have a new grant. We did get a grant a year or two ago from the New Jersey Historic Trust. And we are in the process of planning out how we're going to complete the interior. We hired a preservation architect who's going to help us with our planning. We had a plan. We sort of shifted gears a little bit over the last few years with some of our priorities. And we um, now have a preservation architect who's going to be helping us with this plan. I believe that John Collins, the carpenter on the canal had an office in that location. So we're hoping to preserve a little section of the house where we believe his office was. 
and furnishing it like it would have been his office. Part of the house will be flexible space with a conference room and museum space that's flexible that we can have changing exhibits. But part of the historical importance of the house is the timber framing techniques that were used to build the house. It's considered East Jersey Cottage style of architecture, which used to be very common in this area in North Jersey. Well, almost every house that was built in a certain period in the late 1700s, early 1800s, probably used some of these building techniques that were a hybrid of English and Dutch timber framing. And because it's one of the few buildings that are left, it's important to preserve it. And currently the way the house is, the interior was so deteriorated, we, we removed all the plaster walls. The uh, timber framing is all exposed. So as it stands without the interior finished, it's, a, um, it's like a museum of timber framing. You can see the timber framing, you can see how the, the techniques that they use to build this house. And we are hoping to preserve some of the sections of the house to have that timber framing exposed so people can see the techniques. And anybody who's interested in studying that period of architecture, we had a uh, graduate student a year ago who's studying architecture, historic preservation, who um, used the house as her thesis where she was researching a lot of this timber framing techniques and how they were adapted from Dutch techniques and English techniques. So we're working on preserving that house and that will also be, we hope will become a visitor center along the Morris Canal Greenway. We also hope to do some more landscaping around that property to formalize the path of the Morris Canal Greenway through that section. Right now, because that's where the inclined plane used to be, that section of the canal was used for JFK Drive. Pedestrians aren't permitted on that part of JFK Drive. There are no sidewalks. So that section, you can't really walk through following the path of the canal. But once we get the house completed and get some landscaping completed, we'll have a straight direct path of the Morris Canal Greenway right along where the canal used to be. Well, I'll tell you, Rich, my wife Kelly and I were fortunate enough to walk with you a few months back to see down by the Wrights Field area where you had some great historical signage there. It looked really nice. You could sort of envision what the canal looked like back then. You are preserving a 18th century home that uh, was passed down through the family and were a couple generations where carpenters are on the canal. You are making every effort to document the history and preserve what you can through your town. Tell us about your heart for this, Rich, because I've seen it when you were taking us through this little section of uh, where the canal was in the northern part of the town. And as we were walking along, I, I couldn't help but notice you kept stopping and picking up any little pieces of trash you could find. I mean, you're a councilman, you're a true public servant, and you've got this heart for history. Just tell us a little bit about that. Hmm. I, uh, I, I, I got interested when, uh, when I was a kid. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and there had been trolleys in the area. There was an interurban, what was called an interurban line that went from small steel mill communities into Pittsburgh. Now, it had a been abandoned around the time I was born, but there were some remnants of it around in my, when I remember driving with my grandparents and my grandfather would say, oh, that's, that's where the trolley used to go. I didn't pay much attention to it at the time, but as an adult, I got more and more interested in public transportation and the history of trolleys and you know, these kind of means of transportation that used to be used, but were abandoned. I ended up going back as an adult. I, I learned a tremendous amount of this, about this trolley that I had no idea about when I was a child, where it went. And it went, there was, it went to, um, they built an amusement park out in the middle of the woods where people rode the trolley to get to this amusement park. 
So I started exploring and studying, looking for re researching these kind of things. And it was really exciting to me to find things that I didn't know existed. I found maps and photographs. And it was thrilling for me to find this stuff that I didn't know existed. But it was also thrilling for me to share that with other people. So I started collecting this stuff and creating websites. I, I created a website about the amusement park and about the abandoned trolley. The more and more I collected more information and wanted to share it with other people, I ended up putting it into uh, the form of a website. So I just have this inclination for, I like to discover things about history that are interesting and important and, and share them with people. When I moved to Bloomfield, I, I didn't know anything at all about the Morris Canal. As I went around town, I started noticing these brown signs and wondering where exactly was this canal? I couldn't figure out, well, I mean, there's, so there's a sign here, but where was the canal? Because there were no remnants of it, no photographs or anything. So I started to explore maps. And initially what I learned about the canal was from studying maps, looking at where it used to be, what's there now, I can see where the canal used to be, and now this is Wright's Field. I can see where the canal used to go through Bloomfield. This is now JFK Drive. Started putting all these pieces together and learning more and more about where the canal used to be, collecting this information and putting it into slideshows. We were also very fortunate. We had an artist and photographer who lived in Bloomfield around the turn of the century named Charles Warren Eaton. He photographed the canal and did paintings, oil paintings of the canal. Sometimes he would take a photograph of a location and use it as a model for his painting back in his studio. He has a lot of photographs. We've got probably 30 or 40 photographs, really good quality photographs of what the canal looked like through Bloomfield. And this was just around the time the canal was being abandoned, when the it was around the time that the canal wasn't being used much anymore in the 1910s, 1920s. So when he took photographs of the canal, it was usually no boats. I mean, there, there were no, no boating activity on the canal, very few people. He has a couple photographs of people ice skating in the winter, um, a couple scenes where somebody might be walking on the towpath. But he was more interested in the sort of a, a bucolic scene rather than documenting locks and planes and those kind of things. So these photographs helped satisfy some of your curiosity. You were looking at the brown signs, and now you're seeing some visuals that give you an idea where this was. So it sounds to me, Rich, what's happened is that your natural interest in history and locating sites of things that used to be there and bringing that history alive is a passion of yours. So Rich, what words might you have to close us with about the importance of preserving history in your community? Well, um, it's an important source of pride. I, it is for me, and I think for a lot of people, the more they learn about it, the more they have a sense of pride, they have a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging, sense of community and sense of being involved in the community. I think those things are all important with historic preservation. I think it's important for us to understand our roots, like how did people get around 100 years ago? How did people move goods 100 years ago? I think it's important for us to understand that, to know what our future will be. And uh, yeah, I definitely hope that everything that we're doing to preserve the canal is going to be important to people 100 years from now. So, yeah, I think it's very important to, um, to maintain and uh, to give us a sense of identity and pride in our community and understanding where we came from. And um, I think it provides a much more sense of value about the community that we live in. Yes. And you also give, uh, you mentioned about the Morris Canal tour through Bloomfield. I fully expect to go on the next one, but I have gone on one of your tours of historic Bloomfield, which we just did last week. And that was really cool. I mean, I, my family history was from Bloomfield. My great grandparents moved there in the 1880s and uh, I've lived in Bloomfield. I, I don't live there now, but there were 
places and things I didn't know anything about after all these years. And I love history and I'm always looking stuff up, but you were able to shed some light on some areas in Bloomfield I didn't know about. So that, that's really cool. Uh, there's a Facebook page, Morris Canal Greenway in Bloomfield that I know you're involved in. There's some really good information and photographs that come up on that. Also the Bloomfield Historical Society, there's terrific articles and things that have been posted there that for anybody who's interested in Bloomfield or, or history in general. Yeah, there's also a Morris Canal, General Morris Canal across the whole state Facebook page. And the Canal Society has a website with a new, vastly extended collection of photographs in their building up an archive online. That's another resource. I also, with Charles Warren Eaton, created a website that's a collection of his photographs, charleswarneaton.org, where not only do we have the photographs of Bloomfield, some of the other important historic sites in Bloomfield, like the old mills, Oaks Mill and the paper mill. There were a couple paper mills in Bloomfield and uh, Charles Warneaton photographed them. So we've got a collection of his photographs of Bloomfield, but he also took thousands of photographs of cities in Europe, and those are all on that website too. He's quite an exceptional photographer and, and artist. The Historical Society inherited his collection of negatives, so we were very fortunate to have those. I'm always learning something new, always being surprised at something I didn't know before that I discover about the town or about the Morris Canal or about Charles Warren Eaton. So it's an ongoing educational process for me and for everybody. It's all good stuff. And I did want to ask you about the book that you wrote. You've got a book of photographs before and after photographs of Bloomfield. Could you tell us about that book? Sure. It's called Bloomfield Through Time. It was published in 2015. There are a couple other historic books, um, Arcadia books about Bloomfield and the Morris Canal. And I always enjoyed looking at the photographs in those book and books and reading the captions. But I always wondered, you know, I'd see a photograph, a historic photograph, and wonder, well, what's it look like now? And where exactly is this? And, you know, I would say northeast corner of some street, and I'm trying to figure out which corner would that be. So I like to compare what was there then with what's there now. That's the focus of the slideshows that I do of the Morris Canal. I show then and now photos. So I accumulate a large collection of photographs. We also had a collection of photographs of houses that were taken by a realtor named Nathan Russell, who in the early 1900s, when he had a property that was for sale, he would photograph it. They have his collection of negatives in the Glen Ridge Public Library. So I um, collected a lot of these photographs, took the best ones and did then and now comparisons. And that's what the book Bloomfield Through Time is. So it's you know, a lot about the architecture, the changes in architecture from the early 1900s to today, what some people did to the houses that are still in existence, the changes they made to them. Some houses are well-preserved, but there are also a lot of photographs of the Morris Canal in the book too that show largely the photographs that were taken by Charles Warren Eaton and comparing them to a photograph of what's there today. It's a great book. I have a copy of it. And I highly recommend it because it's, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a person who I could go out to a, a battlefield and just look over a field and just picture something happening there. Or even if it's a, a modern building with a plaque on it in New York City, and it says that some ancient building used to be there. I like to just stand there and imagine what it looked like. But when you can actually see before and after photographs of something historic and I don't know. I just love that stuff. I, I kind of geek out over that. So thanks for writing that book. So Rich, I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast. You are a great friend to the history community, and we appreciate all that you and your fellow historians are doing for us today and uh, what you plan on doing in the future. So all the best to you in your preservation and have a great day. Okay. Thanks. And thank you for making podcasts like this and helping to bring history alive. So I'm glad to participate in it. Okay, Rich. Have a great day. Hey, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.